Well, today, the first Sunday of February, we are beginning a new series. Uh, the title of this new series, we're going to be focusing on the Holy Spirit all month, the work, ministry, person, and power of the Holy Spirit. And the title of our series is Pentecostal. Now, I had prayed about this and tried to think of, a uh, God, how do you want us to go and what direction do you want us to go in in this series and, and what do you want our focus to be? And I thought about different titles, but I kept coming back to this word Pentecostal. I kept coming back to this identity as Pentecostals and what does it mean to be a Pentecostal. And you know that word, it, it kind of gets misconstrued, it, it gets misunderstood, and a lot of times we don't even use that word anymore because of, of some of the, the baggage that maybe comes along with it or, or some of the misunderstandings that are there. But um, I want to I reclaim and resurrect this word Pentecostal because I, I believe it's part of our heritage. I believe it's part of who we are and what we believe. You know, the first Pentecostals, they uh, were, were kicked out of their denominational churches. Uh, many Pentecostals were, were persecuted. Uh, their, their churches were burned down because of their beliefs and, and their style of worship. They were often uh, beaten. There were reports of Pentecostal families being drug out of their homes at night and beaten for their beliefs and for their, their different views on the Holy Spirit. Um, there, there are even uh, examples where, where men and women were, were brought out of their homes and they were persecuted so badly like hot tar was thrown on them as people who, who judged them and who uh, didn't understand the experience they had with God, uh, tried to get them to, to recant and change their ways. And those people who paid the price uh, in the early parts of this movement, uh, they, they deserve our honor and our respect, and, and they were Pentecostals. And I want to reclaim that heritage of what it means to be a Pentecostal. And so this series, it's about the Holy Spirit, but we're titling it Pentecostal because that's who we are. We are people of the Spirit. And, and you know, a lot of times when people hear the word Pentecostal, uh, there's often an immediate intellectual or emotional reaction. Depending on who you're talking to or what part of the country you're in, you could even get negative reactions to the word Pentecostal. Some people, when they hear that word, they immediately think about churches where the women have long hair and, and wear long dresses, or, or they think about churches where the women kind of wear too much makeup and they're a little, uh, little flamboyant, that kind of thing. And Pastor Robert Morris, he said one time, if I ever thought, I thought growing up, if I ever uh, was a Pentecostal or became a Pentecostal, that I'd have to marry an ugly wife either way. Uh, because of these these different stereotypes that we had. Or other people, when you hear Pentecostal, you think of televangelists and scandals of the church in the, in the 1980s and 1990s. And sometimes if you hear that word, some people, they'll start looking under the pews, looking for a basket of snakes that someone's going to take out and start passing around. There's all kinds of biases with this word Pentecostal. And then uh, when I was younger, my impression of the Pentecostals uh, that my grandmother went to church with, they were those people that had a drum set in their church. And they were the ones that clapped to music because that wasn't something that I was used to. And of course, many people, when they think of Pentecostals, they, they think of a group of Christians who are very emotional in worship. Uh, their church services are spontaneous, and there's often extravagant expressions of praise and thanksgiving in their services. And oftentimes, most people will immediately think of the concept of speaking in unknown tongues or languages, and the practice of speaking in tongues is really the identifying feature of Pentecostals for, 
for most people. But this month, I want to go deeper than just denomination or style of worship. We're going deeper than just the signs on the front of churches and biased stereotypes. We're going deeper than religious organizations and religious traditions. I want to go to what it means to be Pentecostal, to be people of the Spirit. And to do that, we're going to take our text this morning uh, from Acts chapter 2. And if you'd stand with me as we're going to read this, turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2 and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'll give you just a moment to get there. Acts chapter 2. I'm going to be reading in verses 1 through 4, and it'll be on the screen as well. Verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, I know you're standing, but let's pause there just a moment. Before I go further, I want to define that word for you. Pentecost is a Jewish holiday that takes place 50 days after the Jewish festival of Passover. Now, Pentecost is the Greek word for this festival. In Hebrew, this festival is called Shavuot. In Greek, though, the, pen, the, the prefix pente means five, like pentagon. And so Pentecost means 50, 50 days after Passover. Therefore, it's 50 days after the events of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. See, the resurrected Lord walked the earth for 40 days after Easter Sunday. He was ascended into heaven on the 40th day. And 10 days later, we read about the events on the day of Pentecost here in Acts chapter 2. Pentecostal, then, means anything associated with the events of the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. So in some sense, all Christians are Pentecostal because every church, every denomination, and every individual Christian traces their spiritual heritage and history back to this day. In other words, every Christian on earth at this moment if they trace back who told them about Jesus and who told that person about Jesus and who told that person about Jesus and the chain went all the way back, that chain would stop at the day of Pentecost. Every Christian ever traces their history and their heritage back to Acts chapter 2. So in some sense, we're all Pentecostal. We all have that heritage. So When the day of Pentecost had come, the Bible says, they were all together in one place, verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues or speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance or as the Spirit gave them the ability. And then skip down to verse 17. Peter stands up. A a crowd has gathered now to to hear this phenomenon that they're experiencing. And, And all these Jewish people are here in Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost, and so they, there's a large crowd that gathers to, to see what's happening to these 120 disciples, and as they're gathering, Peter stands up and speaks to them and shares the gospel and the message of Jesus, and here in 17, he begins to quote the prophet Joel, Joel chapter 2, when he's explaining what is happening right now. He says, this is that which the prophet Joel has uh, spoke about, and he says, in the last days it shall be that I will pour out my spirit 
on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And then look at verse 21. And then it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to use me this morning to communicate the truth of your word to this congregation. Lord, I believe we're setting apart this month. We're setting apart this week as a week of fasting and prayer. We are expecting the Holy Spirit to move. We are expecting your Holy Spirit to be sovereign in this place right now. Would you come and illuminate the scriptures to our hearts so that we can understand? Would you open our minds and our hearts to the work of the Holy Spirit and help us to truly be Pentecostal, people of the Spirit? You may be seated. Amen. All this month, we're talking about the beliefs, the lifestyle, the worship, the mission, and the calling that we can glean from the work of the Holy Spirit that began in the church 2,000 years ago in Acts chapter 2. We are a Pentecostal church. We believe that Acts chapter 2 still has bearing on us today as Christians. We believe that Acts chapter 2 is for us. We believe Hebrews 13, 8, when it says that Jesus Christ was the same yesterday, today, and for all of eternity. He didn't change how he was working. He didn't change what he was doing. Pentecostals, or people of the Spirit, are we are going to take the, the next few weeks to, to study in Scripture what this means for us, what the outpouring of the Holy Spirit means for us today, not only as a local church, but also as individual believers. My desire, and I believe God's desire for our church family, is to truly be Pentecostal, people of the Spirit, to be the kind of Christians that experience the love and power of God, not just a member of a denomination, not just a particular style of worship, but truly people filled with, empowered by, shaped and molded by, immersed in, and overwhelmed with the spirit of the living God. So more than just denominational membership and more than just a part of a certain trend in Christian history, what does it mean for us to be Pentecostal, to be people of the Spirit? What makes us Pentecostal? What, what is different about being people of the Spirit? So today's message is simply entitled, Our Pentecostal Distinctives. What makes us who we are and why? What are our Pentecostal distinctives? When you look at this scripture in Acts chapter 2, uh, we obviously need to look further into God's word for a deeper understanding of the Holy Spirit. And our first Pentecostal distinctive that I want to point out today is our robust theology of the Holy Spirit. We can't talk about Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and you can't talk about Pentecostals without talking about the Holy Spirit. However, many of us, even in Spirit-filled churches, lack good teaching on who the Holy Spirit is and what He does. Notice I said who and He. 
When Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit, he used words like who and he. He said things like the Holy Spirit, you know him. He dwells with you. And it's obvious when you read it that the Bible does not understand the Holy Spirit to simply be a feeling, an emotion, or a force of energy. No, the Holy Spirit is much more than that. There are two biblical truths, actually, to mention when we talk about who the Holy Spirit is. First, the Holy Spirit is God. And second, the Holy Spirit is a person. Let me start with the second one first. The Bible calls the Holy Spirit a person. Now, by person, we don't mean that he's human. What we simply mean that is that he is a living being. He isn't just an inanimate force or energy or a feeling. He's a person. He has a personality. When talking about the Holy Spirit, Jesus used those words, those personal pronouns like he and him. Jesus gives him a name and a title, counselor, uh, helper, advocate, comforter. And the scripture gives the Holy Spirit personality traits. We don't have the time to go into all of them, but if you did a study of scripture and every time the Holy Spirit was mentioned in scripture, you would find a few things out. You would notice that the Holy Spirit has an intellect. He knows the thoughts of God. He has the ability to know and possess knowledge. Only a person can do that, not a force or an energy. The Bible says that he has feelings. He can be grieved and even insulted. You can't insult an inanimate object. You can only insult a person. We see that he has a will. He has the ability to make choices. He can speak, and he can speak to you, and you can speak to him. And he will testify about Jesus, and he teaches you, and he will convict you and correct you and tell you when you're wrong. The Bible says that he prays and intercedes for you. He will guide you and direct your step. He will reveal and illuminate God's word to you. He can be tested. He can be lied to. He can be resisted. Only persons can be treated that way. Only, uh, the only time you can use words and phrases like this to describe something is when you're talking about a person. The Holy Spirit in Scripture is a person. Not only is the Holy Spirit a person, the Holy Spirit is God. How can that be? Well, in order to explain that a little bit more, we have to deal with the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Now, the word Trinity, it's not in the Bible. It's instead a word that Christians use to describe what we observe and read about God in the Bible. And that word Trinity, it's it's a compound word, uh, tri and unity. Three, tri, unity, one. And what the Trinity means that God exists as one God in three persons. Now, Christianity is always more confessional than it is explanation. What I mean by that is we will always end up confessing more than we can explain. So I can't perfectly explain the Trinity to you in a way because there's part of it that's just mystery that we don't understand, that we don't understand that perfect relationship of one God and three persons. But we will always explain what we can, but we can't, what we can't explain, we will always confess. And so we confess that God exists eternally as one God and three persons. And what we can explain, usually when we try and talk about the Trinity, is usually in the form of metaphors. And there's a lot of them out there to help us understand the Trinity a little bit better. Um, one that I hear a lot is water. 
water can exist in three different states, a solid, as ice, a liquid, or as a, as a gas, vapor, or steam. Now, that, that kind of works because there's one, they're all water. They still have the same essence or makeup. They're just uh, expressed in different ways. That sort of works, except ice and water and, and, you know, they usually don't exist all at the same time. And God exists as three persons all at once. And so it, it helps, but it's not a perfect metaphor. Another one that I hear a lot of is the egg. And there's the shell and then the white of the egg and the yolk of the egg. And there's, they all make up one egg, but there's three parts. But the Trinity doesn't mean that there's parts of God, really. And, so, and the shell is not exactly the same as the yolk. And, and so it, it helps, but it's, it's not a, a perfect metaphor. There is no perfect metaphor, but this is the best one that I've ever found. It's going to be a picture on the screen. Look at this picture. Now, how many... There, there, there's... There's three wicks in that candle, but there's just one candle on the screen. You wouldn't look at that picture and say, there's three candles up there. You wouldn't do that. If I asked you how many candles are on the screen, you would tell me there's one candle. But there's three wicks in this candle, three flames. And I think that helps me the most. One candle, three flames. One God, three persons. That really uh, is the metaphor that helps me the most when I'm talking about the Trinity. And maybe that will help you as well. So it's not perfect. I, I could look at it and say, well, maybe um, if we could move the wicks a little bit closer together where the flames are, are just barely touching to get them as close as possible. Uh, maybe that's how we would work. But, but still, it's the best one I've come up with so far. One candle, three flames. Uh, one God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, let me, let me put it this way. Just as much as the Father in heaven is God, so is the Holy Spirit. And just as much as Jesus who walked this earth and who is now seated in a glorified body at the right hand of the Father, just as much as he is God, so is the Holy Spirit. How do we know this? Scripture says so. We read in Scripture about the Holy Spirit, and the Scripture always gives to the Spirit the same qualities as God. Scripture says that the Holy Spirit is eternal. Only God is eternal. Scripture says that the Holy Spirit is all-knowing, but only God is all and all omniscient. Scripture says that the Holy Spirit is all-powerful, but only God is omnipotent. Scripture says that he is present everywhere. The Holy Spirit, the David wrote, I can't go anywhere from your spirit. I can climb the highest mountain or go to the lowest valley, even make my bed in hell, but your spirit is still there. Only God is omnipresent. Scripture says that the Holy Spirit was involved in the creation of the world way back there in Genesis 1. Scripture says that the Holy Spirit brings us salvation and applies it to our lives and seals us as those that are saved. Only God can do that. Scripture says that the Holy Spirit is the one who resurrects from the dead. Only God has that kind of victory over death. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit, it's okay to talk about him as if he's God because he is. It is okay to worship and live praise to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is God. He is the Spirit of Jesus. He is the presence of God here with us today. So Pentecostals or people of the Spirit are deeply aware of and acknowledge the Holy Spirit. 
Now, everything I've said so far, all Orthodox Christians believe and agree with. They all believe in the Trinity if they're Orthodox Christians. They all believe in the divinity of the Holy Spirit. But practically speaking, what makes Pentecostal and the Pentecostal life different is the acknowledgement of the Spirit at a foundational level. Many churches out there believe intellectually in the Holy Spirit. You'll find them mentioned in their him find find him mentioned in their creeds and in their statement of faith, but you'll be hard pressed to hear them talk about him or acknowledge him in everyday life. In many churches, the Spirit is, as Francis Chan called, the forgotten. God. He actually wrote a book called Forgotten God about what would happen if you simply had the Bible as your basis for what church and Christian life should be like. And you would rediscover the Holy Spirit. Take a look at this paraphrase. It's going to be on the screen from Francis Chan's book on the Holy Spirit called Forgotten God. He says, what if you grew up on a desert island with nothing but the Bible to read? Imagine being rescued after 20 years and then attending a typical modern church. Chances are you'd be shocked. Having read the scripture outside the context of contemporary church culture, you would be convinced that the Holy Spirit is as essential to a believer's existence as air is to staying alive. You would know that the Spirit led the first Christians to do unexplainable things, to live lives that didn't make sense to the culture around them, and ultimately to spread the story of God's grace around the world. He goes on and he says, there is a big gap between what we read in Scripture about the Holy Spirit and how most believers and churches operate today. In many modern churches, you would be stunned by the apparent absence of the Spirit in any manifest way. In many modern churches, you would be stunned by the apparent absence of of the Spirit in any manifest way. May that never be said of believers' fellowship. May that never be said as us, as a church, as people of the Spirit. Our desire is that we would rely on the Holy Spirit as much as we would rely on the breath in our lungs. Here at Believers Fellowship, we will endeavor to be open to the Spirit's moving and acting, not just in our church services, but in everyday life. We expect the Spirit to lead us like He led the first Christians. We expect Him to speak, to do unexplainable things through us, to cause us to live lives that are different from the culture around us. We ask that He would empower us to change our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like He did 2,000 years ago. Over 100 years ago, college-age students met in an old decrepit mansion their teacher purchased to start a new school for the study of the Bible in Topeka, Kansas. Here in 1901, picture on the screen of Bethel Bible College, these young people set their hearts to ensuring that their lives would be centered on, defined by, and molded with the influence of the Holy Spirit. They searched the scriptures and they looked for answers to living the spirit-filled life. And one night as they searched the scriptures, a young girl named Agnes Osmond, you see her photo there too, she began asking God for the fullness of the Holy Spirit in her life. And as she read the Bible, 
prayed and surrendered herself to God, she found that she began to speak in a language that she had never learned before. She became the first person in the modern Pentecostal movement to be filled with the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in an unknown language. Later, Agnes would write about that experience, and she said this, The Holy Spirit fell upon me, and I began to speak in tongues, glorifying God. I spoke several languages, and it was clearly manifest when a new dialect was spoken. I had the added joy and glory my heart longed for, and a depth of the presence of the Lord within that I had never known before. It was as if rivers of living water were proceeding from my innermost being. I think I remember Jesus saying something about that. Agnes learned something that night with that experience. The students who were with her and followed her into that experience learned something that night. They learned that the Holy Spirit isn't just a doctrine to be put on the shelf of Christendom. They learned that the Holy Spirit isn't just a feeling or an emotion. They learned that the Holy Spirit is God and that the Holy Spirit is a person and that the Holy Spirit, when invited, he will rush in and fill you and empower you, speak to you and speak through you and transform you from the inside out. They learned that the Holy Spirit had been ignored, but as soon as they turned their attention to him, they found out he was still being poured out just like he was back in in Acts chapter 2. For several more years, students came to Topeka to experience this blessed outpouring of the Spirit. In fact, four years after Agnes experienced, another young man named William J. Seymour enrolled in the school. William Seymour was a black man. His parents had been born slaves. He had only one eye. He was, by all accounts, a reject of society. He was the wrong color, the wrong class. He was of the wrong social standing. But God had a destiny and a calling for this young man. And when he enrolled in the Bible college, he began to search the scriptures, and he sought after the presence of God. And he he was filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with the power of God. And the Lord led him away from Topeka and led him to begin uh, a mission in Los Angeles, California, where he founded what is now known as the Azusa Street Mission, the home of the Azusa Street Revival. This revival got the attention of the entire world. And this revival, led by Brother Seymour, went on for over a decade. It wasn't like church services we have today. It was 24-hour prayer meetings completely given over to the leading of the Holy Spirit. There wasn't even scheduled preaching. People just spoke and expounded from the scriptures as the Spirit led them. People came from all over the world to experience what was happening in an old burned-out barn and a, on the wrong side of town that used to be a stable and was burned out. And they were, it was just a simple place that would have gotten no one's attention, but God began to do something. And when people came to experience what He was doing in that barn, they found that when they opened themselves up to the spirit and they stopped ignoring him and they invited him in that he would come and do unexplainable things in their lives. Drunks who hadn't been sober in decades encountered God's spirit and never touched the bottle again. Cripples who had never walked since birth were gloriously healed. 
And for the first time in American history, blacks and whites worshiped together in public. Racial tensions were dissolved in the presence of God. Cultural and societal wounds that went back hundreds of years were healed in the glory. One witness of the revival said that the color line of segregation and prejudice was washed away in the blood. Newspaper reporters started attending and writing about these strange religious meetings. Mostly they came to mock, and mostly they came to persecute. But what got their attention was the strange things that were happening and the racial unification that was happening. And they wrote about how the Holy Spirit supposedly was doing unexplainable things. They wrote in national newspapers about how at Azusa Street, people shouted and danced in the Spirit. People claimed to be miraculously healed. People prayed all night. People were overcome by the power and fell in the floor in worship. Drunk men walked out sober. Cripples walked out healed. And they heard people speaking in languages they never learned. And because of these newspaper articles and because of the attention that it got, revival spread like wildfire. People would leave Azusa Street full of the Holy Spirit and take the Pentecostal message back to their hometowns. Missionaries would go. They, they'd come to the Azusa Street revival. They'd be filled with the Holy Spirit. They'd be called to go into foreign lands and preach the gospel. They would pack all their belongings in coffins and they'd buy one-way tickets knowing they would never return alive. Why? To take this Pentecostal message to foreign lands led by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel of Jesus until they died. In fact, some of our Assembly of God churches right here in our part of Arkansas, they were pioneered by men and women who had been to Azusa Street, had encountered the presence of God, and they came back to their hometown, and they pioneered a church, establishing it, and what was happening there began to happen here because they were open to the power of the Holy Spirit. These were Pentecostal people with a robust theology of the Holy Spirit. They sought the scriptures. They saw that the Holy Spirit had been ignored. And they opened themselves up for him to take his rightful place in their lives. And when they did that, miraculous things happened. Pentecostal distinctive, a robust theology and practical application of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but our Pentecostal distinctives, secondly, is our radical belief that the work of the Holy Spirit isn't finished. We believe that what God did 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem and what he did 100 years ago in Topeka and in Los Angeles, he is still doing today. The Holy Spirit is still being poured out. See, he still causes a few of us to dance and shout when he comes in the room. He still heals sick bodies. He still raises the dead. He still gives us gifts like words of wisdom and words of knowledge and prophecy. He's still doing miracles. He's still giving us power to live right and wisdom to talk right. And he's still pouring himself out, filling us up and giving us that heavenly language to speak. I want you to hear me. There's a dangerous doctrine out there that says that the supernatural acts of God and the gifts of the Holy Spirit ceased when the Bible was completed and the last apostle died. 
But there is no biblical basis for that belief. The only reason people started believing that was because they closed their lives and their hearts off to the work of the Holy Spirit. They stopped seeing the miraculous and the supernatural. So because they weren't seeing it and they weren't open to it, instead of asking for it, they just found a way to rationalize it and say it's over. The devil has crippled the church of Jesus because he has convinced us that those things that happened back then are not for us today. But like I read earlier, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And the miracles they saw back then, Jesus said we could see even greater ones today when we surrender to him and we allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us. He will do unexplainable, supernatural things in our lives. There's another more subtle doctrine out there. It doesn't tell you it's not for today. Instead, it says, okay, yeah, that stuff's real, but it's not for everyone and probably not for you. It says that God chooses some people to bless like that, but it's not for everybody. That also is complete rubbish, and it's not found in Scripture. The Word says that God is no respecter of persons. And Acts 2, not just some of the disciples were filled all of the disciples were filled. And when Paul writes about the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians, he says that all believers are candidates for the Spirit to work through. The Spirit-filled life is for all Christians. That means that if you are a blood-bought, blood-washed, saved by grace through faith, believer in Jesus, you are a candidate for the supernatural. You should expect the baptism in the Holy Spirit for your own personal life. You should expect the miraculous. You should pray for healing. You should seek the voice of God to speak to you and lead you and guide you. Listen, it is time for you to stop settling for powerless, spiritless Christianity. We are people of the Spirit. We are Pentecostals. We believe in the Holy Spirit, and we believe he has something for us today. I want you to stand with me. We're going to pray before we come up to the altar. Father, in the name of Jesus, I believe today that your word has just opened our hearts up to a new move of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, we pray right now for the sovereign move of the Holy Spirit to come upon us. Lord, we pray right now that you would help us commit to a life filled with the Holy Spirit, a life in step with the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit, walking in unity as believers, just like they were in Acts chapter 2. Lord, we are candidates for your Holy Spirit to move on us and bless us. We receive it today. We receive it today. In Jesus' name, amen.